The theory behind Lay's is deceptively simple. It is based on the concept that ancient sites, i.e. those predating Roman times, are found to align to each other across the countryside. So the list of ancient monuments, which includes standing stones, stone circles, tumuli or burial mounds, long barrows, hill forts and ancient settlements. We must also add pre-Reformation churches. The reason for this is that it was standard Christian policy to erect their churches on the ancient temple sites of the people they were wishing to convert. And undoubtedly, a large proportion of these old churches have been built on much older sacred sites. Now, our present understanding of ley lines really goes back to a certain gentleman called Alfred Watkins, who was born in 1855. In 1925, a book was published called The Old Straight Track. And in this book, Alfred Watkins talks about his discovery or rediscovery of these alignments. There is rather a fanciful tale which is told that one day, while climbing in the Herefordshire beacons, he observed in a flash of intuition these ancient sites aligned to each other across the countryside, and these alignments he saw rather like golden threads of light linking up the different sites. From this inspiration, he proceeded to check out his findings using the old one-inch ordnance survey sheets. And since his time, many other people have plotted these alignments, which can be shown to exist over the whole country. Watkins used the word lay to denote these alignments, and hence we have ley lines or lays. Watkins was not, however, the first to observe some of these alignments. For previously, Sir Norman Lockyer had observed that Stonehenge, Old Serum, Salisbury Cathedral and a hill fort called Clearbury Rain fell on a straight line. Watkins, however, was the first to realise that these alignments stretched over the whole country and the first to map them out and suggest a theory. Watkins postulated that Neolithic man required sighting stones and other landmarks to travel between his settlements. And as the simplest way of doing this, uh, the simplest and straightest way between two settlements was a straight line, so that trackway he marked out with different mark points. This is a plausible argument, for often one can find straight trackways running for part of the lays. However, subsequent research has shown that some of these alignments run across most awkward terrain, sometimes bogs and rivers, and sometimes straight up the sides of high hills, all an unlikely route for the early travellers of old. Now it has also recently come to the fore that not only do we have straight lines, but also circular patterns occur. And it is therefore necessary to reconsider this whole question of what we're dealing with, with these lays. Now, if you're interested in this concept of circular lays, there's two excellent examples of this, 
on the Morver Downs. The centres are at grid references SU1220-6868 and SU1933-7248. The circles are of equal size, with a radius of 9,577 metres, or about 5.95 miles, and interlock, although the centres do not fall on the circumference of the other circle, but marginally inside it. One of the interesting aspects of these particular circles is their proportional relationship with the Earth, for their circumferences, which are 37.39 miles, are exactly one six hundred and sixty-six part of the equatorial circumference. This strange number, 666, which appears in the Revelations of St. John, has been written extensively about by John Michel in his books View of Atlantis and City of Revelation. To fully discuss these circular lay patterns would require a lecture on their own, but they highlight a number of interesting problems. Firstly, they reinforce the argument against Watkins' theory that lays are the remnants of communicating trackways between settlements. For after all, it would seem nonsensical to want to travel in a circular pattern. Secondly, to create these circles would require a degree of sophistication undreamed of amongst the megalithic of Bronze Age Britons. And thirdly, they indicate landscape planning on a vast scale. So we have a number of interesting problems to look at in trying to determine what lays really are. Do they exist, or are they just the figments of a fertile imagination? Well, this is still open to much debate. And there are certainly writers of the orthodox periodicals who have given a lot of thought to the subject of lays. There are at present many experiments taking place using computers to try and analyse lay alignments and assess whether they occur to a de greater degree than chance. Some at present feel that they are not yet fully proved on this basis. But there is the other side who would firmly believe that lays exist and, using statistical methods, try and prove their existence. My own feelings are, certainly, is that there are lay patterns and I hope to present in this lecture further evidence to support this contention. The second question of what lays are. In essence, one has only a series of points joined together by a straight line. To Watkins, the fact that they aligned indicated some form of communication taking place between the centres. And one must here determine as to whether it is the line that is important or the point. They may, of course, hold equal importance. We have very little factual evidence to provide any understanding on the significance of the lines themselves. However, a wealth of information does exist for the points or centres 
and perhaps to understand the significance of the lay system, it is necessary to look at these centres. So, I will present a series of considerations of these points, starting at the orthodox and working through to the unorthodox, from the more scientific to the more speculative. Archaeology provides us with the main source of evidence for the lives that our early forebears lived. Yet unfortunately, it has provided no clues as to why sites like Stonehenge, Silbury Hill and Avebury were built and to what purpose they were put. The concept presented by archaeology is that found in history books of a very barbaric people who lived in these lands prior to the time of the Roman conquest. The monuments they built were originally thought, excepting perhaps Stonehenge, to be very crude. It was suggested that certain cultural influences spread up from the Aegean and Mediterranean to these lands, bringing a greater knowledge and understanding that existed in the cultures of Mycenae, and so gave birth to the megalithic structures in this country. However, Recent carbon-14 dating has had to revise the time scale and it is now known that Stonehenge and similar structures were contemporary with the pyramids of Egypt and certainly predated Mycenae by several centuries. So we have in effect a cultural practice that may well have grown up independently in these islands. Now another area of interest is that of astro-archaeology. And it was Sir Norman Nokia who first suggested that some of the ancient sites were aligned to prominent positions of the sun and moon. There were certain inaccuracies in his work and this stood him out of favour with the orthodox establishment of his day. And it was left to Professor Tom and Gerald Hawkins to vindicate the concepts portrayed by Lockyer. Professor Tom, over the past 50 years, has meticulously surveyed many of the stone circles that exist in the British Isles and he has found three conclusive pieces of evidence. Far from being crude shapes, stone circles are based on precise geometrical proportions and although some of the circles were not in fact circular but were flattened or egg-shaped, they all conform to certain geometrical patterns based on the Pythagorean triangle. Now this is interesting because it was certainly not considered that ancient peoples understood these basic Pythagorean triangles, one of the most famous of which is the 3-4-5 triangle, where the different proportions relate to these particular numbers. The second point is that many of these sites could be found that they were created so as to to provide sighting points for prominent sun, moon and star positions. The third point that Tom found was that there existed a standard unit of measurement that Tom has called the megalithic yard, which was 2.72 feet, which existed in the megalithic circles of the Orkney Islands down throughout Britain to the famous alignments at Karnak in Brittany. It was left to Gerald Hawkins 
to show the astronomical alignments of Britain's most famous monument at Stonehenge, where a large number of sun and moon declinations at the solstices and the equinoxes are clearly indicated in the geometrical structure of this monument. From an orthodox point, we can therefore summary as follows. There must have existed an ancient aristocracy or priesthood in these islands who were well versed in the astronomy and geometry and who had the cooperation and backing of the local populace. The cultural links of this priesthood extended throughout the British Isles. This indicates a much more stable and coherent populace than is often considered uh, by orthodox archaeologists. Now another area which is very fascinating and interesting is that of the study of the legends and folklore surrounding some of these ancient sites particularly the stone circles and standing stones and hill forts. Stones and stone circles has held a mystery down throughout the ages and we have recorded by Geoffrey of Monmouth who, talking about the stories of Arthur, mentions a certain magician called Merlin who talks to the then King Ambrosius on the significance of Stonehenge and he says that the stones were transported by a giant to Ireland and that these stones contained certain healing properties and he urges Ambrosius to have them brought to England and have them set up on the Salisbury Plain. Merlin assures Ambrosius that he has the magical power to do this. So we have an interesting fact here because we know in the creation of Stonehenge that certain stones were certainly brought from a considerable distance away and this indicates how the myths and legends do in fact contain elements of truth which can be handed down over long periods of time and the other interesting fact is that Merlin says that these healing powers were contained within the stone and this idea of healing is found in many other places on Mitchin Hampton Common near Stroud in Gloucestershire there is a stone there where it is said that if children who have rickets are passed through a hole in the stone they will be cured. There is another stone called Menatol which is a circular stone in Cornwall which a similar power is said to exist. Other stones are said to aid fertility in women and if a woman touched a stone or put her hand through the stone and held the hand of her husband or lover, then their union would be fruitful. And many such folk customs exist around the country of a similar nature. There's a very old standing stone overlooking the Clyde, called the Granny Kimcock, which is, is said the fishermen frequently used to visit, bringing gifts. For this stone, it was said, had control over the weather and the fishing. Now another interesting legend is that attached to people who slept in stone circles and who were often said to experience strange phenomena and some legends even suggest that they went either mad or became a poet. High up in the mountains of Cader Idris there is said to be a stone where the giant Idris sits. If a person sits on this stone throughout the night 
you will either become mad or die or become a genius. There are many other stories told of people sleeping by burial mounds and finding themselves being drawn in through secret doors where they are confronted with fairy folk in the midst of banquets and such like. Some stones are said to be excellent for granting wishes and also there is a famous white horse at Uffington where if one stands in the eye of the white horse and if you turn around three times clockwise then your wish will be granted. On the other side of the fence it was considered great sacrilege to desecrate any of these stone monuments and often people would experience terrible retribution if they were so much as to move the stones and that retribution would only cease when the stones on the monument had been put back as it should be. Now with so much mythology attached to these sites the devil couldn't be far behind so the stories go. And we find many legends which suggests that the devil was involved with the creation of the stones. Some of the stones are thought to be groups of people who have been petrified to stone by the devil, such circles as the Merry Maidens in Cornwall, and also the great circle at Stanton Drew, which it was said was a bridal party, and in the midst of the reveries the devil appeared, they dance and dance till dawn and as you all know as soon as the sun comes up those such people are turned to stone with the Rollwright stones in Oxfordshire we have the same elements for there um, in this particular stone uh, or stone circle the devil took the form of a witch who suggested to the king that if he were to take three paces forward and perceive uh, certain counties in the distance he would become king of all England well he took these paces forward but he found his view was blocked by a burial mound uh, not far in the distance and immediately he became turned to stone and he is now the king's stone and there's a small burial mound nearby which is called the Whispering Night the devil, of course, took prime delight in attacking churches and we have many early accounts of how the Christian forefathers whilst earnestly building the stone walls of the church arrived next morning to find them knocked down again and the stones moved to another site. In some cases, they eventually built the church on that site however awkward or inaccessible it may have been. A classic example of this is the church at Churchdown Hill but it is said the devil every night moved the stones from the foot of the hill up to the top. And there are many cases of churches which have been built on the tops of hills, perhaps the most famous being Glastonbury Tor, where there is a church dedicated to the Archangel Michael on the top of the hill. So we have lots of superstitions and legends which all suggest some form of psychic activity which is taking place at these sites. Perhaps the least 
scientific of all the evidence around stone circles is that obtained by the psychics and dowsers. There are two quite well-known dowsers who did a lot of research on this level and have written about their findings, one being Guy Underwood and the other T.C. Lethbridge. They both attested to the fact that they were aware and found energies or vibrations associated with these places. And in more recent times, uh, a dowser from Cardiff called John Williams has suggested that even the standing stones create a form of spiral energy when he touches certain stones. And this effect of this energy is so strong on him that it causes him to lose his balance. There are other psychics who have experienced similar feelings in such places and who have felt that these centres were sacred sites of an earlier people. And this really brings us to the subject of power centres. Because one starts to realise when one is looking at this question of lays that one is dealing with something which is not existing on a physical level. There is some form of energy manifesting at these points. In 1975, my wife and I spent a fortnight's holiday in Cornwall and we had the opportunity to visit the majority of the stone circles on and around Bodmin Moor. As well as visiting a number of of other sacred centres in Cornwall, like St Michael's Mount. St Michael's Mount is one of the terminal points of one of the important lays which is thought to exist in this country, which starts at St Michael's Mount in Cornwall, travels across up the length of Cornwall, going uh, through a very well-known stone circle called the Hurlers. It travels onwards across Glastonbury Tor and on to the large circle of Avebury and then on further across the countryside to the Abbey at Bury St Edmunds. And here we have an example of a ley line which covers a very extensive area. Now my wife is someone who is particularly sensitive and she had the ability to clairvoyantly travel back in time. We had both been very much aware from our early investigations that some form of energy was present at certain points, at certain centres on ley lines. And we had to, the opportunity to study in depth a small group of centres. Our findings were very interesting, for they clearly showed to us that the energy centres at such places was used extensively in the past and could, with the right knowledge, be tapped again. Around these senses there was a protective influence, but once negotiated it provided many insights. Each centre had its own particular flavour of energy, which was dependent upon the use to which the centre was put. For example, one centre was used for healing another for astral travel, another helped dying people pass from this place to the next, another acted as a key to the Akashic records, and so on. 
We did, however, encounter some dangers. The certain centres had been tampered with, and the energy emitting was certainly not wholesome. So one has to be careful in one's approach on this level. Since that time we have visited many centres, some of which are well recognised and others which are not. But in all cases we encountered similar experiences, which has confirmed in our own minds that the nodal points in the lay system are foci of energy, which was and can be used directly in psychic experiences. And within this system there are many levels of power or energy. So how can we draw together this whole concept of ley lines and put it in its right perspective? We seem to have certain nodal points of which we have a form of energy emitted which, as I have said from my own experience, can be directly tapped and used by those who know how to link on to this form of power. These nodal points can be shown to link together on a map and it would seem correct that there is some form of psychic link connecting these different points. A certain amount of research has been done along this level and it is quite possible that this linking system could have been used for a form of communication, although not one in the strictly walking sense of people walking across the ground. One piece of research which was carried out by Tom Graves consisted of two dowsers standing on one or two ends of a ley line and they were both several miles apart and through their dowsing pendulums trying to transmit messages along these ley lines. This would tend to coincide with my own thoughts and ideas about how this energy linking was used, for I am sure it would be possible to transmit ideas and thoughts along these ley lines, and using the type of response which one obtains through dowsing instruments, it would be possible to decipher messages which were sent. There might have been more sophisticated ways of picking up these messages, but it does seem to present an idea of how these particular sites could be used. Most lay patterns would seem to extend for only a few miles, which would suggest we're dealing with the linking of settlements idea on that type of lay. However, as mentioned, some lays do continue for long distances across the countryside. Particularly, we have one which is, as I have said, the one which runs from St Michael's Mountain, Cornwall, across to Berris and Edmonds. There is another important lay, if you wish to plot it on the map, which starts at Canterbury Cathedral and runs across the country in the other direction, passing you through Westminster Abbey and on to Gloucester Cathedral. So some of these alignments would seem to go for quite long distances. And here we may be looking at 
are lay on a slightly different level. It is true to say that the actual alignment situation as far as these as far as these long distance lays are concerned is not quite so accurate as occurs with the shorter lays. And for this reason, Paul de Vra has suggested a more apt title would be geometric corridors. For we have as though there is a corridor of influence or energy. But that corridor could be uh, up to several hundred yards in width. Now in looking at lays on this way, we would have to look at them in a slightly different way. It has been suggested perhaps that we could be seeing something which has been likened to the acupuncture system which exists in the human body. As you know within each of us there are these meridians which the ancient Chinese perceived and on these meridians of which there are actually 12 in all in the human body are certain nodal points or acupuncture trigger points which can affect the balance of energy within the human body. Now certain of these long distance lays would seem to reflect something on a similar nature. And it is possible that ancient peoples were aware that on these points they were able to tap into some of the life force of the planet as a whole. To draw upon that life force and use it to help them in their studies and also to help in the type of psychic influence which could be generated out to the immediate surroundings. So therefore, we, it would seem that we have two different levels of lays. One being that of the simple psychic communication between particular nodal points, stone circle to standing stone to stone circle, to small village community and the second being that of the more important centre such as perhaps Stonehenge which acts as a main focal point for this lay energy. Now of course when one starts to consider our circular lay patterns in this way then they can be seen to make a little more sense. Certainly to look at a circle on a purely physical level would seem nonsensical, particularly in relation to their great size. But to look at them as being centres of psychic influence, we have an explanation which to my mind makes more sense. It is very interesting nowadays when one visits certain well-known centres such as Avery and Stonehenge to see the number of people which are attracted there. And even when one is walking across places like Dartmoor, Bobney Moor to isolated stone circles, there too one can often see other people who come to look and observe 
and maybe experience something on a level which perhaps they're not consciously aware. One of the most popular tourist centres is in fact Stonehenge. The most popular is the fact the Tower of London. But of course the Tower of London is said to be sited on another sacred centre. So maybe here too we see this same influence manifesting on a more subtle level than perhaps we can tangibly see in the outer form.